recorded live, Union Inn, Washington, D.C., 1112, 3rd Street, Northeast. We are Steps to Nomagayudet Metro. Nice, brisk walk to Union Station. And a leisurely jaw to the Capitol, Capitol Hill. I am the illustrious Innkeeper Freddy, host extraordinaire. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Guestbook Podcast. Guestbook Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. All y'all Top Gun fans out there, I'm sure you recognize this song. Fans of Archer, the uh, animated comic uh, series on FX, you probably recognize this song. Kenny Loggins, called Danger Zone. Now, many of you would ask, wait, hold up. I thought that your guest today was a retired naval officer. Well, he's about to tell you why. Kevin Mayette, how's it going? That's going fine, thank you. He has a very, 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 very interesting story. I know I always say that for every single guest that comes onto the podcast, but for real, I've already taken three pages of notes of just his story, his life story, because he has several phases to it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit back and I'm just going to let him tell you all his life story. Hey, I'm uh, Kevin Mayette. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I grew up there. got there when I was about two years old. He's wearing a Jacksonville Jaguar shirt, by the way. <laughs> the, uh, went to Forest High School, now named Westside High. Uh, graduated in, from Florida Junior College. Went off to Georgia Southern University, where I got a bachelor's degree in industry. Okay. Uh, while at uh, Georgia Southern in my junior year, I joined the Navy, Aviation Reserve Officer Candidate. In between my junior and senior year of college, I went to eight weeks of officer candidate training in Pensacola, Florida. Came back to Georgia Southern, graduated, and uh, then went back for my final eight weeks of uh, aviation officer candidate training. I got to fly the T-34 Bravo, which is a little airplane uh, used as a trainer. It's a prop. Then I left there and went to Beeville, Texas, where I flew the T-2 Buckeye, and I flew the TA-4J Skyhawk. These are all fighter jets, right? No, they're training jets. Okay. But uh, they're jets. How many people sit in the... Two. Okay. Two. The instructor and a student while you're learning how to fly. And are you side by side or back to back? Back to back. Okay. Tandem. Okay. Uh, left there uh, because the Vietnam War had wound down. They sent me to Washington, D.C., where I worked at a place called Nav Cossat in the Washington Navy Yard, where I learned how to program computers uh, using punch cards. In fact, I was. Uh, we had the first computer that you could actually uh, program online. And it had two processors, a Univac 1108. So the first dual processing computer uh, running around. So we had the 1108, the 1110, and Honeywell 6060s. So for those that aren't tech inclined, what is a dual processing computer? It's just two CPUs. So it allows you to execute two instructions simultaneously. And pretty much every single computer right now has at least a dual It can do more than one uh, execution at a time. So I was stationed in Washington, D.C., and because the war was winding down and they had more pilots than they knew what to do with because they weren't sure when the war was going to end, they asked us if we would like to go into any other specialty uh, or we were going to have to leave. 
So I decided I would become a aeronautical maintenance duty officer and learn how to fix airplanes. So uh, I went off to Memphis, Tennessee for 16 weeks of school. Uh, went to my first squadron VF-32 Swordsman, first East Coast deployment of F-14 Tomcats. So I was in VF-32, uh, went on a North Atlantic cruise. Okay. Uh, and this is all based out of where? Uh, out of Norfolk, Virginia. All right. Went and, on a North Atlantic cruise. And what ship were you, what was oh, the name of the ship? I was on the USS John F. Kennedy. Okay. Really cool ship, my very first ship. Went up uh, above the Arctic Circle, got to operate in 50-foot seas. Well, we weren't operating very much. We were mostly being seasick. <laughs> you see the Northern Lights? Uh, yes, you can see the Northern Lights. We went to Portsmouth, England, Brest, France, and Wilhelmshaven, Germany on that cruise. What was the longest that you would be out on these cruises? Uh, most cruises were scheduled to last between six and seven months. The longest I ever did was 10. Okay. And the shortest I ever did was six. <laughs> so. And how much downtime would you get between cruises? Normally, the cycle was about 18 months. So you'd go through a workup phase where you got ready to go, and then you'd be in a prepare for overseas movement phase where you're getting, where you get ready, just ready to go, and then you'd go. So I left there. Uh, see, I got there in 1976, and I left there in 80. Okay. I went over to the staff of uh, Commander Naval Air Force's U.S. Atlantic Fleet. Uh, they gave me a thesis topic so I could right when they when I left there I went to graduate school you had the thesis topic before you even started school oh they they gave me some suggestions on what they would like and they were problems they were trying to solve gotcha so, so when you came back you would I, I automatically had, be... I'd, I'd have the answer yeah. yeah okay so I spent 15 months in Monterey California which is probably the most beautiful place in America yeah, yeah really cool honestly went to school in civilian clothes had civilian teachers not military guys so uh, I met a lot of cool people I know Monterey is near Napa. Yeah, we were pretty close to Napa. It's only a couple hour drive. Uh-huh. And in fact, I made the drive a few. We made the drive a few times. We'd invent. We'd uh, rent a van. Everybody would pile in it. We have designated driver, and we'd go from winery to winery. So it's kind of fun. A lot of good wines. A lot sure of good drink. ones. Yep. All right. And I, I really not a wine drinker either. <laughs> Monterey will make you a make wine drinker. Uh, so I left Monterey, California, and went back to Commander Naval Air Force's U.S. Atlantic Fleet. Now, what degree did you get? Oh, I got a master's degree in management with a concentration in financial and material management. Okay. So I went back and became a deputy controller for Commander Naval Air Force's U.S. Atlantic Fleet and had a $1.7 billion budget, which was used to maintain all the aircraft, fly all the aircraft in the Atlantic Fleet. Is this back in Norfolk? That's back in Norfolk. I did one thing that I'm very proud of there. The, uh, we could never figure out what it cost to fly an airplane for an hour okay we couldn't figure out how to budget for it so uh we came up with a way to budget for it for every dollar of gas we got we had to get one dollar in consumable money that's stuff that you throw away like uh, rags and safety wire and nuts and bolts and screws and we had to have two dollars in repairable money that's to fix the radio or the radar or the or the tacan or the or the flare pod that uh, designated targets so if, as long as they gave us a dollar for gas, one dollar for consumables, and two dollars for uh, repairables, and we kept the flight hour mix between the different airplanes and the air wing the same. What is the metric that you use? Was it per hour flown? Per was hour per, flown, okay. per flight hour. Right. That was the metric we were using. And, and, and it really wasn't that good of a metric because you could, you could take an F-14 up and run it out of gas in 20 minutes. All you do is light the afterburners. So, so there's a difference between a flight hour where you just climb up to altitude and fly from one city to another and where you 
where you take off and go fight each other in the air or you go drop bombs or you go on a low-level route to try to penetrate a target. So uh, trying to come up with that mix of how we could budget for airplanes, and we finally did, and it was 112. 112 is a factor. That's a factor, and we were and we did really good at it. The 112 mm-hmm. relates to how many flight hours you are projecting. Yes, yes. And that is averaged over time where it's just we're just flying over here to do some reconnaissance or flying over here to do battle, battle or flying yeah. over here to drop That's bombs exactly right. and all that stuff. All that stuff. So okay. we kind of averaged it out. And so we did a really good job of projecting how much money we needed. And what's really funny is whenever they cut back on funds, they always cut back on maintenance funds, but they don't cut back on the flight hour, which means your airplanes turn into pieces of crap. And that's what happened to us over the last several years until they got the increase in defense budget just a couple of years ago when President Trump came on. Okay. So, uh, uh, you know, it's not glamorous to buy spare parts. It's glamorous when you buy a airplane. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, so, but it, you had to keep a, you had to keep their head screwed on straight. You know, this is the early '80s, right? Yeah, early '80s. Then I uh, left there, uh, went back to Commander Naval Air Forces, U.S. Atlantic Fleet. It was involved in uh, the first automation of aviation maintenance, which was a computer that uh, helped us repair components, repair parts that were broken from an airplane. And it was called SIDEMS, which later went into Nalcomus. And uh, the, the SIDEMS acronym, what does that stand for? I don't remember, I don't remember what SIDEMS stands for, but I remember Nalcomus Naval Aviation Maintenance uh, System. Okay. Anyway, that was a fun time and got to go to different uh, air stations and implement this uh, computer system. Okay. So did that for a few years. Then I uh, was selected to be an air wing maintenance officer, and I was on as a staff of uh, Carrier Air Wing 6 on the USS Independence. I made three more cruises there all throughout the Mediterranean. Where'd you go? And the most interesting one was we were headed on a summer cruise to the Mediterranean where it was, everything was going to be cool. We were going to hit the beaches of, uh, of France. And, so it was PTO? Uh, uh, no, no PTO. Oh, this is part of? Part of being on a cruise. Okay. Uh, you got every third day off. One day you're on duty, one day you're on standby. You left at about five in the afternoon and then the next day you got off totally. So it was kind of cool. Made three cruises there. The most interesting one was, as we're headed for that summer cruise, we made a right-hand turn to Grenada, went to flank speed, and headed down there and uh, got the Cubans off the island and got the American uh, students from the medical school down there safe. So that was kind of neat. And we learned a lot because none of us could talk to each other, different radios, all that kind of stuff, different sized bombs. So big uh, a big awakening in the navy took place and in the armed forces in general about how to operate interoperable how the army and the navy were going to operate together or the air force so we learned a lot of valuable lessons left there with a carrier at about 40 percent fuel uh, stayed on tankers for two days on our way back to the mediterranean uh, and then immediately started dropping bombs on syrian gun emplacements in lebanon Wow. So uh, this 40% thing, Yeah, you mentioned something interesting before we started the podcast. You were saying that uh, aircraft carriers can use jet fuel, right. but jets can't use aircraft carrier fuel. Correct. And so that means that they're different. They're different, yes. Explain the difference between the two. Well, it used what they call Bunker C on a conventional aircraft carrier, which is a very thick fuel. You almost have to heat it to pump it. You know, I mean, it's really thick and it's nasty uh, as opposed to jet fuel, which is uh, like kerosene. And it took us a couple of days to fill up with fuel because, I mean, we were really low. So we spent many twelve, a couple 12-hour days alongside the tankers filling up with fuel on the way to the Med. Uh, finished that tour duty. All right. And left there and went back to Commander Naval Air Force's U.S. Atlantic Fleet. Uh, again, in the controller position and again doing computers. At Norfolk. At Norfolk. 
a lot of fun so, job. So Norfolk is a big hub, a big hub for, for the Navy. Navy. Oh yeah. What other? What's a, what's the comparable city on the West Coast? Uh, San Diego. Okay. Okay. Uh, and we have two major submarine ports. One in Connecticut. I think they still go in there. And uh, Kings Bay, Georgia, has a new submarine base. So how far is that from Savannah? So, yeah, from uh, not far at all. From Jacksonville, it's only about forty miles. From Savannah, it's probably sixty. So it kind of, maybe, oh, wow. yeah, it's, so it's pretty close. Kind of yeah. equidistant, kind of. Yeah, almost. All right, it's probably closer to Jacksonville than Savannah. Okay. Uh, let's see, where was I? I was at Air Land again, right? Yeah, after you and left the Independence. After I uh, no, after I left. Oh yeah, and then I went back to Air Land for. Oh no, I missed one for you. I'm sorry. Nice. I went to NAS Oceana. And I was the production officer at the world's largest aircraft facility, repair facility. NAS Oceana is another aircraft carrier. No, it's Air Station, and it's in Virginia Beach, Virginia, right next door to Norfolk. Yeah. So I stayed there for a couple years. And Station is basically like a base. A base. Okay. Stayed there a couple years and then got got selected to become a department head on an aircraft carrier. And it was a four-stall. And uh, there were 550 guys in my department on the four-stall. And my department won the battle for being uh, the most ready for battle in uh, while I was on a department head. So I was pretty proud of that. In fact, we won two of them. Congratulations. Yeah. On the uh, forest off, the funnest thing I ever did was I got to con the ship. I became a qualified uh, command duty officer underway and at anchor. So what is conning a ship? Conning a ship is when you pull up alongside the oiler and you shoot the lines across uh, you stabilize both ships side by side at about 150 to 170 feet apart, and then you bring the lines back and forth to, for gas and for fuel and for, for the cool stuff, fresh fruit, vegetables. While it's still moving. While it's still moving. Yeah, you, you do that at 12 knots. It's similar to, I was telling them, the Top Gun video game. Yeah, where you retank. Yes, yeah, where, you where you're retanking yeah. a, a plane yeah. in mid-flight. Mm-hmm. I also got to meet uh, pres- the first President Bush at the Gorbachev Bush Summit, I was his escort officer. Wow. So that was kind of cool. And it was a, it was a fun couple, week while he was aboard the ship. Uh, got, to, got to do a lot of interesting things. Um, President Bush used to eat with his troops, not with the officers. So that was kind of cool. He was a naval aviator. Okay, yeah. so his background, because I know he was the head of the CIA, but yeah. before that, yeah. he, he, was, he came he, from the Navy. He was a naval aviator who got shot down, I believe, in the Second World War. Yeah, oh. yeah. He was hey, quite, a, quite, of a, quite a uh, history for him. But anyway, I got to meet him. All right. uh, I left there and went to uh, uh, Commander, uh, Commander Strike Fighter Wings Atlantic, which uh, where I was a deputy chief of staff for materiel, and I was head of maintenance for F-18 and S-3 squadrons on the East Coast. How many aircraft was that? Uh, we had, a gosh, a lot, maybe 150 airplanes. Wow. Uh, that's an F-18s, and we probably had another uh, 80 airplanes and S-3s, maybe 60. I retired out of there All right. in 1992. All right. Uh, well, before you go on, okay. <clears throat> since th- this this marks the end of the chapter for the your time in the Navy, mm-hmm. I wanted to go over some fun facts that you told me that okay. I found quite interesting. How long does it take for an aircraft carrier to sail across the Atlantic? Oh, so we normally took uh, six to ten days. All right. And how fast are you going? Twelve knots. And we did that to conserve fuel. Now, we could go a lot faster, but uh, we did that so we could conserve fuel. I found that interesting because when he told me that, I was like, wait, you're only going 
Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what's the ratio for knots to miles per hour? I think it's 1.1. Okay. Yeah. So it, roughly, it's it's around the same thing. So if yeah. we're talking like 12, it's probably somewhere around 15 yeah. miles per hour. So you're going 15 miles per hour, and it only takes you a week to go. Yeah. But then you brought up an interesting point yeah. that you're running 24 hours. That's right. You don't have to stop to stay at a hotel. Oh, the carrier runs 24 hours a day, seven yeah. days a week, 365 days a year. Exactly. No break. So when you when you have that, when you add in your sleep time to it, yeah. it kind of makes sense. Yeah. How long does it take to get across the Pacific? Oh, weeks. <laughs> a couple of weeks. If you were going to like sail from uh, San Diego to Hong Kong, it'd take a couple of weeks. Really? Yeah. yeah. So the Pacific is twice as, as wide? At least. And uh, you would probably stop in Hawaii on the way. <laughs> and Hawaii would be how long in? Uh, you'd spend a day or two there, three or four days. But it would take like, a, say, a week to get week to Hawaii? A week to get to Hawaii and a week to make the rest of it. Yeah. So I never made a cruise in the Pacific. Okay. All my cruises were either in the North Atlantic or in the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. Or the Caribbean. All right. And something I didn't realize. So he's been talking about aircraft this entire time, but he was in the Navy. And I didn't realize that there are people that fly jets that are solely in the Navy. I, I was on the impression that if you sat in the cockpit of a fighter jet, you were in the Air Force. Nah, no, no. Yeah. No. And there's actually quite a large number. Large number, yeah. yeah. There's at least, the Navy's got about half the pilots that the Air Force has. That's crazy. On active duty. Mm -hmm. And then we add our Marines to it. And we're probably probably pretty comparable. They probably have a few more, but not that many more. Is there an elite aircraft side of the Navy? So you know how they have like the Navy SEALs? Yeah. And they have Delta Force? Yeah, no. Oh, so no, is, is, no. like the Blue Angels no. side thing. Well, the Blue like? Angels are really cool, but yeah. the uh, no, they're not. Uh, all they they're demonstration pilots. Okay. They show you what uh, normal Navy pilots do all the time. So, except they don't fly three feet apart, they fly thirty feet apart. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which, by the way, I didn't tell you is one of the funnest things you've ever tried to do is fly formation in an airplane. It's like riding a bicycle. You remember how many times you fell off your bicycle? Well, what happened is the instructor would get you in perfect position, have you all lined up in perfect shape, and give you the airplane. And within 30 seconds, he had to take it away from you because you, you know, you'd hit the hit other somebody, airplane. Yeah. yeah. And and you and your first flight, it was like that uh, three, four, five, six, seven times you tried it. It was it didn't seem to get much better. Uh, second time you went up there, it was like, hey, I know how to do this. I remember, <laughs> I remember how to, you know, I remember it's like kind of like riding a bike. Yeah. Yeah. Are the rules for landing a plane different by state? No. Mm -mm. So let's just say you owned a thousand acres. Okay. You can land on it. And you don't have to get any permits nope. outside of being nope. able to. Nope. As long as you're not in what they call a terminal control area. Like here in Washington, D.C., you're in a yeah. terminal control area. It's yeah. very it's controlled, restricted very yeah. restricted airspace. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you couldn't uh, have a thousand acres on the other side of the Potomac and... and open up one because you got Dulles over there and you got Reagan over there so but uh, by and large if you had a big piece of land somewhere in rural Georgia rural Florida you know rural Montana you could land your plane in your own place how do you communicate so you don't hit another plane well you fly VFR and it's you do it yourself what's VFR visual flight rules so if you see another plane see another plane get out of its way yeah and do they have rules on levels yes like for example if you're in one of these Luscombe planes yeah. You can't go above, say, 10,000 feet. You can't go above 10,000 feet because you can't breathe above 10,000 feet. So, you know, because of the oxygen. Well, you go a little higher, but the... Don't uh, you have a, a thing? No, not in those airplanes. Okay. Oh, hell no. In jets, now you have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but not in, a, not in a little private plane. So how high would you go? Oh, I never went more than probably 5,000 feet in one of those. 
So you don't have to worry about any commercial hitting any commercial no. jets. It's mm. really just other people, other people like flying you. like you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and you got to make sure you're not flying over a state, a football stadium, or a baseball park, or a big crowd. Those kind of things. Then there's rules. But if you're out in the middle, you know, just doing your thing, you can just go flying. I've never flown a plane before. I have no, I mean, absolutely no experience. I don't even know how to do maintenance work on my car. Let's just say I wanted to learn how to fly a plane. Okay. How long would it take me? Uh, to get your license, you'd have to go to class. Mm-hmm. You have to pass a written test. Okay. And then you have to take a uh, 40 to 60 hours of flight time, depending on what kind of license you want. It might even be more now. They have a sports license now and a regular license. Sports license takes less time and then a regular license. But you got to pass a test. Got to know the rules of the road. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to uh, pass a flying test. Okay. And you go on a check flight, and the guy says, yep, you're good to go, and then they issue a license. Oh, you got to have a physical, too. Oh. Yeah, yeah they don't want yeah. you getting a heart attack yeah, up there. no heart attacks in the air. Okay. Do you have to own a plane in order to get a license? No. You, in fact, most people that get their license don't own an airplane. They rent them from the, from the local airport, and uh, they rent those airplanes. Uh, they were a lot cheaper when I was a kid, but... Uh, you know, for a hundred bucks an hour wet, that means full of gas, mm-hmm. and you go take a lesson. And instructors don't get paid very much, 25, 30 bucks an hour. And how, how often do you have to renew? You gotta take a physical every year, okay. and you gotta have a check flight. Every year? Every year. Okay. I think it's every year. It might even be more than every year, but you gotta be proficient, you gotta fly so many hours a year to stay proficient. If you went to say St. Thomas, you like you yourself, okay. went to St. Thomas, and said, you know what, I wanna go to St. Croix. Could you rent a plane to fly there like in the sense of does your license carry over oh yeah internationally internationally yes okay mm-hmm. you can fly there all right is your license still valid oh i never had a license ha! Ah, how about that because the navy doesn't require one <laughs> well i guess you you had all the training but you never really flew in official duty no never flew in official duty all right okay so you retired at the beginning of 93 93 all right i went to work for a software house all right and i was their director of computer operations i i owned the server rooms and uh, all the computers and all the backup power supplies and all the generators that gave you electricity when the power went out did that for four years uh i enjoyed it learned a lot about uh the hardware and then and this uh, is in what city and this is in jacksonville florida okay uh then i left there a friend of mine's wife was installing a computer system that we had already installed in our at my business called PeopleSoft and it was HR PeopleSoft I've heard, I've heard HR PeopleSoft, PeopleSoft. Yep, yep. she called me up to ask a few questions because she was having trouble with their uh, IT department you know they, she, they weren't telling her the whole story or the whole truth so she asked me over I talked to her showed her showed her what I knew all about uh, what I knew about PeopleSoft and then they offered me a job and I wasn't even looking for a job I was over helping my buddy who was in the Navy with me his wife so I became the director of business solutions for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Florida. And I uh, helped HR professionals solve their HR problems. I standardized them just like we did in the Navy. You know how you did, I told you about that? Yeah. Yeah, well, if you go, you gotta have a repeatable process. Otherwise, variation is, enters the game. And when variation enters the game, you get different outcomes. Yes. So if you want, if you want a constant outcome, uh, you've got to have a standardized process. So this is mid to late nineties. Uh, yes. So mm-hmm. internet was out, but it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, you no. didn't use the internet to solve problems. Probably, yeah. I probably got my first email account in ninety five or ninety six. Yep. So with your background and all of this, uh, I mean, I know you're working on planes, but mm-hmm. you were really working on the, I guess, the software, the computer side mm-hmm. of the guts of the plane. 
I'm wondering, did that train you well for being uh, tech savvy in the civilian world? Yes. In okay. fact, uh, and, and because I had uh, sailors that worked for me, I could sniff out bullshit better than anybody, okay? <laughs> so uh, you can sniff out civilian bullshit just like you can sniff out uh, sailor bullshit. Sure. <laughs> so you're at Blue Cross Blue Shield, Director of Business Solutions. Solutions. And uh, I wanted to become an HR professional because I wanted to get out of the tech world. And uh, they kept telling me, no, you really got to have a background in this to do this kind of work. And I, and I used to look at them and say, hey, I solve all your problems and I don't know how to do your job. So one of our wholly owned subsidiaries had an opening for a director of benefits. And she was one of my best customers, the uh, vice president of HR. So I went over and applied for her job. And she was as happy to have me as I was to have her. So I became director of benefits for Fixo. And I also had to put in a payroll system. That was the tech part I had to do to get to be the HR guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved that job. How long were you there? I was there until 2012. So that was, that was more than 10 years. Yep. Now, this is interesting because throughout this entire time, all the different stints that you had within... I never uh, did Navy. anything in the Navy more than four years. Yeah. yeah. So this was... And a, even before then, I mean, when you yeah. worked for the software company and Blue yeah. Cross Blue Shield, yeah. Yeah. like you, it was no more than four years, right? No, no. So you were constantly moving around. This one, you finally stayed somewhere. Stayed somewhere, yeah. And I really <laughs> enjoyed it. And I probably would still be there, if, uh, but I had to take care of my mom. And uh, she died a couple of years ago. My condolences. Yeah. The, uh, but it's a very fun job. Uh, I've had a really full life and I've been all around the world. So what, what more could you ask for? You retired from there in 2012. Mm -hmm. And so for the last seven years, you've mm -hmm. just been enjoying I, life. Enjoying life. And in 2014, I went to Australia, New Zealand. How long? Uh, I was there 30 days. My niece was, uh, was a graduate student at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. And she was graduating, and uh, so we went over for her graduation. The uh, my daughters came over with me, and my wife. We flew over, immediately went on a cruise. So we left Sydney. We went on a fourteen day cruise to seven different ports in uh, New Zealand, and then came back to Melbourne, and then back to uh, Sydney. And then we got a rental car. My daughters left and went home to their kids <laughs> and their husbands. And uh, my wife and I and my niece, we drove the Great Ocean Southern Route all around Australia to Adelaide. It took us four days. From Sydney to Adelaide. From Sydney to Adelaide. We could have got there in a day, but we took, we, w we drove four hours a day. We decided, well, I picked up all the hotels on the internet. And any interesting place that we saw, we stopped and viewed it oh, was cool. really cool so for, to, to give you an idea geographically of what he's talking about <clears throat> sydney is i guess you would say in the southeast coast coast mm -hmm. of of australia and then it kind of comes around imagine australia is kind of really fat boomerang right mm -hmm. uh where the point of the boomerang is the north part right so imagine he's coming around one end of that boomerang to sort of the middle of the boomerang that's where uh, Adelaide is and he passed by Melbourne which is about halfway through if, it's if, pretty big yeah. if Florida was about three times wider than it was <laughs> it'd be like going from Jacksonville Florida going all the way around to Tampa <laughs> yeah wow yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. Adelaide is also close to Kangaroo Island yes did you go there no okay no went to a bunch of vineyards <laughs> oh, ah, yeah, that's uh, kind of cool. uh, Siraz and Siraz, yeah, right? Yeah. right? And I got to play poker at uh, at the train station in, in Adelaide, so that was kind of cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one last thing before we get to the seven questions. Okay. 
throughout all of your travels, all that you've done, lived a full life, what are your words of wisdom? Oh, I really have no words of wisdom other than uh, it all revolves around the family. If the family does good, everybody does good. And if the, if the family unit breaks down, then everybody breaks down. Perfect. All my daughters are very successful, really successful, a lot more successful than I was. That's because uh, we stuck together as a family through thick and thin. That's great. Oh, yeah. Ready for the seven questions? Yes. All right. What's the call, what? y'all? It's the questions. It's the questions, boy. It's the questions. It's the questions. Yeah, the questions. Question number one. What's the book that you would add to the library that we have here at the end? I would put a pocket constitution of the United States of America. I think we actually have that downstairs. Oh, cool. All right. Why that one? Because everybody needs to know what their rights are. And it spells out your rights as an American citizen. And uh, there's nothing more better than a free man or a woman. And knowing the rules. And knowing the rules. Number two, podcast subscribe. Oh, I've listened to Brad Owens. He's a poker guy. I watch his podcast all the time. Is he called the Brad Owens Show? Brad Owens Show. What drew you to the sport of poker? I don't know. I think I watched it on TV when Moneymaker... Won the Chris World Series of Poker. He was from Jacksonville, right? No, I don't know where he's from. I think Arizona. Okay. But uh, I've actually played poker against him. Really? <laughs> yes. Number three, something you didn't know that you needed until you got it. Uh, a computer. Hmm. <laughs> I had a lieutenant that worked for me when I was a lieutenant commander. And he had Lotus 1, 2, 3, because we didn't have Excel back then. And he used to do my spreadsheets for uh, for flying our program. Mm-hmm. And my captain asked me if I did that. I said, no, I got a lieutenant that does that. He says, well, you're gonna learn how to do it. And I said, ah, I don't need to learn how to do it. I got a lieutenant. Next thing I know, he gave me a written order to learn Lotus 1, 2, 3, (laughs) which I did. And I've used it ever since. It was probably the smartest thing that ever happened to me. Best thing that ever happened to me. Ryan, what year was this? God, let's see. It was when I first got to Airland. So it was probably around 1980. Wow. Yeah, maybe a little after. Or maybe it was my second time at Ireland. It was the second time. So about 85. About 85. So the early mid-80s. Yeah. Number four. I can't wait for this one. Bucket list place to travel. Oh. You've been to so many places. I've been to a lot of places. I got to tell you, if you're going to go to Europe, mm-hmm. all right, you want to go to Rhodes, Greece. Okay. Is that like Rhodes Scholar? Uh, yes. Okay. You know, the Colossus of Rhodes. Yeah. So yeah. R-H-O-D-E-S. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. And then you want to go to Rhodes, Greece, the island. It is so fantastic. Crystal clear water. You can see down for uh, 80 feet deep. I mean, it's the most, it's really nice. And uh, it's filled with topless Scandinavian women. Hey. <laughs> so for a sailor. <laughs> you buried the lead right there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the next one would be Palma de Mallorca. Okay. It's an island off the coast of Spain. And the place to go is Magaluf. It's a, it's a little town there on the island. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful place. Another place with beautiful water, beautiful beaches. Would Magaluf be a like suburb of Palma? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of those two, which one would you put one? Probably Rhodes, Greece. Okay. Yeah. All right. Number five, 50-mile detour restaurant. <clears throat> There's a restaurant anywhere in the world uh, where you'd be willing to go 50 miles out of your way just to eat there. Ant Catfish in Daytona Beach, Port Orange. A-N-T? Ant, A-U-N-T, aunt, like okay. Aunt Catfish. Okay. Yeah. A-U-N-T. Yeah. Aunt Sunday catfish. brunch. Okay. Yeah. And this is in Daytona? Daytona. Actually, it's in, uh, it's just south of Daytona, Port Orange. This is on the water? Yes. Okay. Why'd you choose this one? Best brunch you ever ate in your life. If you name it, it's on the brunch line. (laughs) (laughs) The most fantastic meal I ever had in my life, though, was on Palma de Mallorca. 
Really? Yeah. But okay. uh, that I would definitely drive 50 miles out of my way to go to uh, uh, catfish. And catfish. Yep. And is the catfish amazing there? Yeah, but I don't like catfish. It's all the other stuff. <laughs> number six, your number one skill. This is your number one honed craft, something that you've worked at. Leadership. I like that. Yeah. You have to work hard at it, and you got to stay ahead of it. And with respect to leadership, is this with respect to... Um, Reading people, understanding people, communicating with people. Yes. It's okay. all relationships. Okay. Yep. Last but certainly not least, number seven, your number one talent. This is an innate proficiency. You didn't have to work at it. You yeah. kind of just, it came naturally to you. Baseball. Really? Yeah. This whole podcast, you haven't yeah. mentioned baseball once. No, it's okay. a young little kid. Okay, so tell me about it. Oh, I started, my dad was a coach. Mm-hmm. I was a second baseman and I loved it. And uh, I played it until I broke my arm in a motorcycle accident. Ooh. The uh, I had a motor scooter when I was 14. In mm-hmm. Florida, you could drive one oh. under five horsepower. Okay. Is this and, like a Cannondale-type bike, like a dirt bike? Or is this an actual no, like, exactly. Harley? No, it was a Honda 50 Supersport. Okay. <laughs> but what I crashed on was uh, Montgomery Ward's Mobilette, which was like kind of like a... You pedal it when you run out of gas one. And the lady came across the median in the road, hit me head on, and I broke my arm on a rear view mirror. Oh, man. And it was a Mercedes Benz. And that was your throwing arm. That was, uh, yep. And uh, so I sat out that whole year, so I never got back into baseball man. after that. Yep. And how old were you at this time? 16, uh, 14, 15, 16. 16. 16. And yep. was was fielding your thing, or was it the hit, bat? Hitting, hitting was my thing, yeah. Okay, yep. so you were, a home, you were a slugger. No, I didn't hit a lot of home runs, but you didn't strike me out. Ah, I always hit the ball. I ah. kept it in play. So you had good eyes. Good eyes. Yep. I like that. So Kevin, this is great, man. Do you have any social media or a website or any no. way? No, not at all. No. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on to the uh-huh. podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Guestbook Podcast. Uh, as always, if you want to reach me, innkeeper at unionindc.com and on social media, we are at Guestbook Podcast for the podcast, at Union in DC for the N, and at Innkeeper Freddy if you want to reach out to me directly. And of course, the website is unionindc.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. When was the last time you flew a plane? Uh, last time I flew a plane was with my dad. It was probably in 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. And was this a fighter jet? Oh, or was this a oh commercial no, no. Or, my or, dad or, had a. My dad at the time had a Cherokee 140, which is, is okay. it's a little civilian flight. airplane. Okay. The uh, and before that he had the funnest airplane in the world. It was an Aronka Champ. It's a Cherokee 140. 40. There you go. It's like a propeller plane. Yeah, a propeller plane, single engine, fits two guys. And what was the one that was super fun? Oh, a super fun one was the uh, Aronka Champ. And then he also had, there it is. Yep. Okay. And then he also had a Luscom, which was the first civilian all metal airplane built in 1945. Like that? Uh, That's Luscom it. Luscom with a yeah, E. Okay. A, 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 and he owned these? He owned those. Yep. That's how I learned how to fly. I learned how to fly in one of, in, a, in a Ronca champ. So to be safe to say that your father was your inspiration for wanting to join the, the Navy? Navy yes. The, the aircraft side of the Navy. Yes. Okay. Yes. My dad's first license to fly was in float planes he was he couldn't land on an airport but he could land in the river so uh, that was how he started wow so you said he had three planes at one time 
Oh, he didn't or have he, all of them. He, okay, he, he'd, he'd trade them up. Yeah. yeah. He never lost a dime on an airplane. I bet, I bet he didn't. <laughs> nope. He would just rent it out for people that wanted to... No, he'd never rent it out. He wouldn't rent it out to anybody. He would uh, he would fly it himself, and when he got sick and tired of that airplane, he would sell it and go buy another airplane. Ah, because he, he always, increased in value? Yeah, he increased in value. Ah, he always man. made money. Okay. Yep, always made money on his airplanes. 